There should be a period of time between when we learn something new and when we turn around and teach that same thing to others. How straightforward and commonsensical this idea may seem, but how rarely these days do we actually see it carried out in practice. In the information age, it's incredibly easy to go to a workshop or a retreat, you know, spend very little time learning something new, a practice, a teaching, a perspective, and then turn around and use that as a resource or fuel for your own teaching without giving yourself a period of, let's call it, digestion. As Leslie says in this episode, when we do this, we're not actually giving the information a chance to become a part of ourselves, right? To become integrated with our cellular structure. In other words, we're not actually giving a chance for that information to be embodied. So we see this in many different areas of life and we accept it as what is necessary for an educational process. For example, I don't know anything about the medical education trajectory, but if we imagine, for example, just for the sake of argument, If the first-year medical student was taking their first class and, I don't know, conducting surgery, we wouldn't think that they could then go and perform surgery, right? There needs to be a period of, you know, cultivating the knowledge around that, practicing perhaps on not a live person for a period of time, and then actually having the expertise, the embodied disposition to be able to carry out a surgery without danger to the other person. In the spiritual and contemplative world, we often think that that yoga or meditation are practices that are so banal that we don't really need a similar kind of educational process. But today in this conversation with Leslie, one of the things that I really appreciated about the conversation, and we talked about many things, but one of the things that we talked about was the kind of rethinking the paradigm of yoga teaching education to really um, uh, reflect the process of digestion that's necessary in order to become a really skilled teacher. So he offered a three-tiered system of, or a three-tiered sequence of becoming a yoga teacher that I thought was really interesting. So the first thing that he says is that the 200-hour is perhaps at best a yoga instructor training. In other words, to be a yoga instructor is to essentially learn a certain sequence, learn a set of of teaching practices that someone else has developed, right? Whether it's a lineage or a tradition or another group of teachers who've spent some time digesting the material and creating that sequence or that, you know, practice of yoga. And then, and and to become a yoga instructor is just to be able to kind of memorize and to parrot, and I mean that in a neutral way, not in a negative way, to be able to parrot essentially that class. And that's a lot of what many quote-unquote yoga teachers are doing. They are essentially reciting a memorized sequence. So this is to become a yoga instructor, and there's nothing wrong with that place in your yoga education But it's different from being a yoga teacher. And that is, according to this conversation I had with Leslie, really what comes as a result of digesting the process of being an instructor over a period of time so that the teachings and the principles and the practices of yoga become digested in such a way that you can begin to articulate the teachings and the practices in your own words, right? They come from your own lived experience 
rather than being sort of um, adapted from the lived experience of other teachers who've spent more time in that process of digestion. So we have yoga instructor, we have yoga teacher, and then Leslie offered this additional tier of the yoga educator. And the yoga educator is essentially a teacher trainer, someone who has digested the process of becoming a teacher long enough that they can then go and perhaps they've developed the pedagogical skills and learned a little bit about pedagogy and and how to, you know, actually train teachers and educate teachers to then go and create a yoga 200 hour, a teacher training 200 hour or some other advanced training. I would add an additional tier to this, which is the yoga practitioner, right? Which comes before being a yoga instructor. And I don't mean by this that someone has, you know, practiced a lot of asana over many years. That is, of course, an important piece of the puzzle. But to become a practitioner, according to this definition that I am humbly offering here, is to actually integrate the knowledge of the tradition with the practice. So in addition to actually practicing the asanas, going to the yoga studio, you also spend some time in conversation with the teachings, right? You actually study, for example, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, although there are other yogic texts that you could dive into as fruitful ways of really um, absorbing the philosophical material and the theory of the practice. But really alongside that practice of yoga or meditation is also the, the synergistic relationship with the knowledge of the tradition as well. And I think in general, and this is just my opinion, that most of the time we lack this element of actually spending time with the teachings themselves um, when we are practicing yoga. So I'm suggesting that this idea of the yoga practitioner is actually one that integrates both the knowledge and the practice. And this is an important part as a prerequisite to becoming or going on the journey of becoming a yoga instructor. Now, why am I mentioning this? I'm I'm not here to criticize what anybody else is doing or to, you know, say that some people are yoga practitioners and other people aren't. It's not anything like that, and people are going to continue doing what they want to do, and that's, I think, inevitable. But what I am sort of suggesting or hoping to inspire with the conversation like the one I had today with Leslie and, and others that I will continue to have in the coming months here on the Chitheads podcast is to try to inspire a new paradigm of yoga education, one that really raises the bar both on what the trajectory of learning Uh, and what the pedagogical kind of arc of yoga education looks like and perhaps raising the bar will attract more students to this more kind of rigorous educational process because I think that and this is just a little bit of a polemical opinion or perspective over the last however many years the kind of bar of yoga education and what it takes to become a yoga teacher has really diminished quite a bit it's quite easy to go and get a 200 hour teacher training in a month's time with very little background 
um, with yoga, very little practice of yoga, you know, under your belt, so to speak. And while that's totally, you know, in some sense fine, we are, you know, we've been pumping out a lot of yoga teachers and that's great. We need more yoga teachers in the world. But unfortunately, we've also seen a shrinking of, you know, the opportunities for yoga teachers. Many yoga studios have closed in the wake of the pandemic and in COVID. And so if we have less available opportunities for teachers, we need to both think about how we can really raise the bar of yoga education so that the those opportunities that are being filled are being filled with highly qualified teachers who can inspire more students into the practice and the process of yoga education. And then also, I think, you know, raising the bar on yoga education and also thinking about the business of yoga and the organizational parameters of yoga thinking beyond, for example, the yoga studio model and how we can take yoga to different types of environments, into schools, into prisons, into other environments where it's very needed, how we can make yoga more accessible, more inclusive. All of these different things, I think, come about uh, from really careful conversations and explorations of the opportunity that is also a part, I think, of this kind of new paradigm of yoga education. So these are just a few of my thoughts, and obviously they're just my opinions. And we talk a lot more about other things uh, in this conversation with Leslie Kamenoff. We talk a lot about um, the yoga anatomy craze in the yoga teaching community. We talk about some of what has happened, you know, over the course of the pandemic. We talk a lot about different things that are really will be applicable and relevant to yoga teachers and also to people who are perhaps dreaming of becoming yoga teachers themselves or inspired to take up the process of learning how to become a yoga instructor or a yoga teacher. You can reach out to me if you have any thoughts about the episode or you were inspired by any of our conversation by reaching out to shitheads at embodiedphilosophy.com. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Leslie Kamenoff. Hi, Leslie. <laughs> Hello, Jacob. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm uh, just thrilled to be here in London and having some free time to drop by. You were just an easy walk from where we've been staying. Yeah, I was I was really excited to, to see that you were at the studio that I've been going to, Mission, mm-hmm. um, which is a beautiful space beautiful owned space. by a wonderful person, Jenny Wilkinson-Priest. Shout out to Jenny. <laughs> Shout out, Jenny. <laughs> and, um, and Simon. And Simon, yes. And so, have you been to London before? Is yeah, I, I've been here uh, several times to teach, um, and previously for uh, uh, Tri Yoga mm-hmm. um, when Jenny was running yeah. yoga for Tri Yoga. Uh, so it was just a natural thing to just yeah. follow her into the new space. What's changed about uh, London or the yoga community here since you were here last? I was in the UK in 2021, but not in London. I was in Manchester. Because mm. uh, we we had a workshop there that had been scheduled and people had paid and all that, but it was originally scheduled for like you know June of 2020. So clearly that didn't happen. So we kept pushing that, kicking that can down the road. And right. So uh, that was actually the first sort of large in-person thing I did post lockdown mm-hmm. was 2021 in Manchester, and then last year here in London. So changes. Um, I, I think 
You know, the, 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 the take used to be that, you know, if you were in New York and sort of in the midst of all of this yoga scene in, this, in the States and you'd come to Europe or England or whatever, the, the take would be like, how many years behind does it feel like they are, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of whatever the next thing is or, or whatever. But it doesn't feel Behind like New it. York. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because, you know, a lot of the, um, uh, I'd say, uh, stylistic or, or waves of interest in, in yoga tend to get uh, brewed in, you know, the United States, in these urban areas on the east yeah. and the west coast. Um, but uh, I don't think that's the conversation anymore. I think mm. everything is everywhere. And, you know, uh, I don't think of this or that country or region being uh, ahead or, or behind. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, there was a huge reset over the last three years of, of the whole industry. You know, a lot of studios are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ones that uh, survived um, were able to do so through... Uh, streaming or you know just renegotiating their leases or whatever it is that it takes to keep a physical space going in in the yoga industry these days you have to really know what you're doing yeah you know it was never a high profit business to begin with and certainly less so when you know they shut you down and you know people aren't coming and the fact that jenny was able to open a brand new build out here in london uh, is just extraordinary. I don't know anyone anywhere in the world who even would think of attempting anything on that scale in 2023. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. And I, I'm, I've am i been observing in London that it seems like there's actually quite a few, there's quite a few studios, especially in the South London, where it's a little bit more of kind of the Brooklyn vibe, mm-hmm. although you have a little bit of that you here. Mean where the rents are a little lower. Where the rents are a little lower, yeah. but even I've looked at spaces just because, you know, um, I've thought about, you know, what would it be like to start a studio here? And I mean, the rents compared to New York are really much cheaper. And so um, there it seems like in here in London that there's a resurgence of the the of yoga practices and yoga studios in a way that New York has maybe not quite recovered as much. Sure, and that's mostly mostly due to real estate, I would think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good to hear because obviously I don't see everything that's happening in right. London. I fly in, you know, walk around a bit, teach my workshops, and yeah, you know, um, get to see my immediate surroundings, and I, you know, I can hear things and having conversations like this. So it's you know a lot more about it than I do. Well, and I don't know that much. I've only been to a few studios, but it's but it does seem like the the size like I mean Mission is huge, the yeah. one you just taught at. And then there's and it seems like the size and scale of the studios here is a little bit like what you'd find in the size and scale of studios in New York like 10 years ago. And so it's kind of made me wonder if there's a little bit of a of a of kind of a golden age of yoga happening here. Cool. Well, maybe maybe uh London is uh 10 years behind because <laughs> If that's the case, in ten years they're all going to have to close again. Yeah. Oh gosh. That's <laughs> I mean, when you talk about the big studios in New York, you're thinking of like Jiva Mukti and yeah, Om, yeah, Om and yes, you know, uh, just you know. Uh, well, also we had the whole Yoga Works thing going on. Mm-hmm. They were just acquiring places left and right. Yes. Over expanding. Over expanding, and then yeah. they fell apart. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's nice to hear that that there's energy here, and that people are embarking on new things. Yeah. Um, because from, from where we were sitting stateside during the pandemic, uh, you know, it was like lights winking out one by one. Um, and that affects me directly, obviously, because a lot of these places that are no longer around were places that would have possibly invited me to come teach and do a workshop or 
or get involved with providing anatomy for their teacher's training or something mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, there's just not as many potential hosts out there as there used to be. Exactly. Yeah, I was speaking to Ava Taylor recently, who, ah, yeah. And my good friend Ava Taylor. Yeah, she just she's actually doing a course with us on Master the Big Four, which is like four principles of your yoga business, and mm. having conversations with her about how much you know she was i mean obviously her business was also decimated and i'm curious what well to be to be fair she was getting out of the uh being the um talent agent for touring yogis before the pandemic ah okay right because she was booking me yeah at least in europe we were doing our own stateside thing i see um but yeah she saw the writing on the wall before the pandemic hit as in that there was a decrease in the like the the, the that it had peaked. The demand had peaked. I the, see. And the market had reached a kind of a saturation. Yeah. You know, and 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 people were being a little more circumspect with how to spend their yoga dollars. Yeah. You know, on things like workshops or trainings or or traveling to a retreat or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it does certainly feel like at a certain. Uh, you can kind of remember that moment in, I guess, the early 2010s when there was a bunch of, or maybe late 20, 2000s, early 2010s, when there was all these articles about the yoga body and you'd see some fit uh, mm-hmm. uh, musc- muscular slim yogi on the front cover of uh, the New Yorker or something. And that kind of craze of of yoga was at its height. But really, was that the height of... Um, that was the height of maybe a fitness-centered yoga. I, I think, yeah. Well, it would have started in the uh, sort of early to mid-90s, really. Mm. Um, we were talking about this before we started recording, yeah. how the, the incredible surge in popularity of yoga had a lot to do with the more athletic, uh, sweaty styles of uh, vinyasa practice, fueled yeah. mainly by Ashtanga vinyasa teachers who were starting to come over and, right. and, and, you know, and teach more widely. And the fitness industry, which at that point was barely 10 years old itself, um, said, wow, you know, this is amazing. We want this in the studios. We want, you know, we we want it in our gym. Um, And amazingly, if you can imagine at that point, there was this thing that's hard to picture today is that the demand for yoga teachers far exceeded the supply. Mm. We're talking about early going to mid 90s. Wow. Right. And because, you know, the gyms that's why you didn't need a yoga teacher training at that time. To well, get that's why you needed teaching. standards. That's why we yeah. got together and figured out the 200 and 500 hour standards because, you know, and, and I, I, I say this all the time, I, I don't fault her at all for having this brilliant business insight, but someone like Beth Shaw was, was bound to jump into, the, into that gap between supply and demand and offer weekend trainings for yoga teachers. Mm -hmm. Because essentially what she did was she went to the owners of gyms and said, hey, you've already got people on your payroll who know how to lead group fitness. They're called aerobics teachers. Give them to me for a weekend. And at the end of the weekend, you can have yoga on your schedule because these people now know how to teach a yoga class. Mm. That was yoga fit. That's how it it was born. Wow. And, And so at that point, some of the folks who were, hanging around and talking to each other at, you know, unity and yoga conferences and later yoga journal conferences, which started in, um, 95. Um, we were like, Oh, you know, people are training teachers in a weekend, you know, is that okay with us? I mean, you know, shouldn't there be some minimum standard that, you know, we're willing to put out there? Yeah. 
uh, for what we consider to be, you know, just baseline training for yoga teachers. That was one part of the conversation that led us to sit down and come up with these, these standards. Mm. As they say in Hamilton, I kind of was in the room where it happened because, you know, uh, I was part of some of those meetings because of the work I had done with Unity and Yoga and, you know, the, the people that we were connecting who were having these kinds of conversations. Yeah, we actually talked about this in our first interview, which I should mention to those listening that oh, yeah. or watching mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, this is um, the second interview we've had. Yes. And yeah, we did one for Chitheads in 2000. Actually, it was a very early on interview. I think mm-hmm. you were probably in the I, I meant to look at it before, but I think it was before number 20. Wow. Um, and uh, I mean, it's been going for seven years and I should be on, in the 300s by now, but I haven't been pu- publishing that regularly. Okay. Um, but here we are somewhere at 180. And um, I remember in that in that conversation, we talked a little bit about um, Yoga Alliance and sure. I and I struck a, a relatively um, critical position. And I think sure. you had a really nuanced uh, um uh, approach to it mm-hmm. um, because I had sort of suggested at that time that Yoga Alliance was not actually, um, it, I mean, it had standards, but it wasn't sort of overseeing any, the, you know, we, there was no way to sort of legislate the, those, those, and to actually have some sense of oversight of, of, of whether or not, you know, the standards were being implemented in sure. the training themselves, right? So really someone could just sort of... It's easy to game the system when yeah. no one's following up. Right, exactly. And you could, you know, you could basically fill out a document that satisfied Yoga Alliance and then, you know, conduct your training in a completely different way. Yeah. But they were trying to implement things like, you know, social credentialing where there was, you know, feedback and reviews and things like that that would help to weed out the... Uh, you know the bad actors or or the substandard yeah thing. So yeah, that was that initiative never really went anywhere with yes. the alliance. And it's it's changed recently. I remember I've noticed again. It's um, well now you can do an, a a, um, a a two hundred hour entirely online. Well, they had to. I mean, yeah, they had to. There but there's no way they weren't gonna <laughs> right. I mean, I was, but I, I sort of thought initially that they would go back after COVID, that they would sort of return, but they've there's no going back. There's no, there's no going back. <laughs> There's no going what back. What are you going to do? You're going to tell all the people that are paying dues to your organization, which is what keeps it going, that that their business model is no longer yeah. valid. Yeah. You know? uh, and also, I, I, you know, it, to take a less cynical, you know, view on it, 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 as much as online, you know, is deficient in the in real life aspect of yoga, which is very important to to folks like us, um, it does make it accessible. Yeah. To a whole range of people who otherwise wouldn't be able to That's very true. get this kind of training. And look, the 200 hours, the problem I always had with it is that from the beginning, we called it an RYT, which is a registered yoga teacher. And, and my point had always been, again, to bring a little nuance to the conversation, that after 200 hours, you're at best an instructor. Yeah. Registered yoga instructor, which means mm. you've been given um, a class to teach mm. someone, that someone else figured out a sequence of some kind, and you've been given some words to say, which are not necessarily your words. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Everyone needs that as a starting point. That was my starting point when I trained with Shivananda. I learned the Shivananda sequence, and I learned the words to say to get people to go through the sequence. And that's how I had the, you know, the, 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 the confidence, such as it was at the time, to get in front of a room and lead people through an hour and a half of, of, of yoga 
right? Everyone needs something as a starting point, and I think 200 is a starting point. And whether you get it online or in person, as long as it's acknowledged that this is the beginning yeah. of what it takes to become a teacher, then there would have been less confusion from the get-go, and people would have less problems with things like online trainings. Because, you know, to be honest, there's some people out there who have been trained as teachers in the post-COVID or during COVID era who have never taught an in-real-life class, who have been trained online, and they teach online. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a problem with that. Why would anyone have a problem with that? Some people aren't leaving their house. Some people don't feel safe going to uh, you know, an in-person class. And, and they've been able to get whatever instruction and benefit that they can from you know, over the Internet. Mm. Why, would it, why would someone have a problem with that? Yeah. I mean, I guess the, I, I hear the point about, you know, it's a starting point because it, cer it certainly is. But do you think that the, the missing piece there is that generally speaking, it's many people approach it if, as if it's the beginning and the end. Well, sure. Yeah. And that there's not as enough emphasis maybe perhaps on like how to contextualize the 200 hour into a larger sequence of kind of educational formation. Well, that's a problem in a lot of areas of the world, not just yoga. Yeah, I mean, right. like, for example, when a surgeon treats, you know, his job of doing whatever surgery as the beginning and the end, and as soon as the surgery is over, his job <laughs> is done, goodbye, good luck you know, what kind of follow-up is being offered. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if they were, if, if, if they saw themselves as more of a whole person healer instead of just a technician whose job is done when the last suture is, is done, actually, they don't, even, they don't even close up. They walk out of the room and the residents are doing it, right? So, you know, so this is, this is a problem that's in, in, endemic in many fields mm -hmm. where, where you have this one area of, of focus and the the greater context of that person and their life uh, is, is kind of not part of your perspective. Yeah. You know? Um, and I did, that was, that was one of Desika Char, my teacher's um, really strong suits is that he never lost that perspective, you know, that they was dealing with a, a, a person who has a life and a history and a uniqueness to them. Hmm. And, and for him, the, what he would call the technology, which is the techniques that they're learning breath and movement and, chanting or whatever it was he was teaching you know was was merely a vehicle for a relationship but the thing that was important was the relationship so yeah you know if if you go through a 200 hour training online or whatever and your relationship with the people who trained you ends when you complete your hours and you get your certificate and like go forth and whatever you know that's that's if it's if it's not pretending to be anything else I don't have a problem with that. It's like, yeah. okay, go find the next thing you're interested in. Yeah. Go find a teacher who you're attracted to or another online training or a retreat or a conference or yeah. or whatever. It's when you pretend that it's something it isn't, I think, then you know, you you're uh then 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 there's a kind of a problem. Yeah. I want to go back to this point that you made about um that I guess I see as a distinction that you're making between yoga instructor and yoga teacher, which and I, I would go beyond that. I would go yoga educator, which means someone that's capable of training another teacher. Okay. So we have yoga instructor, yoga teacher, yoga educator, and maybe yoga therapist. Although I think there's some problematic um, aspects to using the word therapy, which I've talked about in the past, but I, cause I just call myself a yoga educator, even though I do one-on-one -on -one stuff with therapeutic intent. Yeah. Um, because therapists kind of 
you know, it, it treads on other licensed professions. Yes, yeah. And um, avoiding any um, attempt to license what we do in any aspect of, of yoga is something I've been strongly, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, uh, advocating for for a long time. Right. It was one of the issues I had with IAYT, you know, mm. the, the body that deals with yoga therapy, is that they, they're perpetually on the fence about the licensing issue. Mm. And I don't know what the current leadership uh, has, you know, now as a matter of policy, because I'm so out of touch with it. But in the, in the past, I was kind of taking them to task for not committing one way or the other to be for or against licensing. Mm. Because whatever decision you make, at least let your membership know where you stand so that they can decide whether they want to be part of it or not. Yeah. Anyway, so therapist brings up that whole thing, which is why I use the term educator. But yeah, I would say instructor, uh, teacher, educator, which is someone that is capable of maybe creating another teacher. Um, and uh, if it's well-defined in a way that lets you know where you stand vis-a-vis -vis regulatory forces of the universe, maybe therapist. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, so okay, let's let's go into the weeds here a little bit. So with the yoga instructor, I hear like the the qualification is essentially the two hundred hours. So is it as simple as like okay, five hundred hour now you're a yoga teacher, or would you have other qualify? You know, well, I think that's where criteria. you're with competencies and hours right. and and um, and uh, mentorship. Mm -hmm. uh, if you really want to be real about it, yeah, that's where relationship is really important and should be emphasized relationship between the teacher and their students mm -hmm. relationship between the, the 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 evolving teacher and their mentors yeah um and uh the ability to demonstrate some level of competency in generating a class sequence in generating uh, a dialogue that's yours and authentic and not just parroting someone else you know um I have to make this point in just about every workshop I teach um, because it's something that I was guilty of when I was studying with Desi Gachar. It's like, you know, you, you don't you don't go to and have the best meal of your life and it's so delicious and you want to share it with someone you care about because you want them to have this experience. The way you share it is you don't take a plate and go, here, you know, try this meal that I just had because that's regurgitation and that's not how you share a meal. <laughs> now, it's, it's absurd to think you would do that with food, but we do it all the time with information. Mm -hmm. You know, you, 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 you ingest this and it may be making the most sense in the world to you, but in your head, it's still in someone else's words. You yes. have not yeah. digested and absorbed it yet. It has not become part of your cells and you have not sorted out the part, the parts that are going to become part of your cells from the parts that you're going to shit into the toilet right so it's not all going to be useful some of it is waste but it takes a process of digestion for all mm. of this to happen and information like food has to be digested mm. so between 200 and 500 hours there has to be some kind of period of time where you know you're you're allowing these these teachings and your experience and what you've observed and modified and understood and studied and discussed it all becomes part of yourself so you're capable then hopefully at the end of let's say a 500 hour uh, process of generating a class of generating an experience for people out of your own understanding mm -hmm. and using your own words or as i do frequently 
quoting with proper attribution mm-hmm. the people who have inspired you. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, pretending that you made those wise words up. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, whenever I quote Desikachara, I try to make it very clear to people, please remember this thing I just said, that's something he said. Because I've actually seen like on Instagram or whatever, after I've taught his words being attributed to me and it just it makes my skin crawl. Yikes. When there's sort of misattribution there. Yeah. Or something I said being like twisted in ways that I never meant and being attributed to me. So yeah, yeah, yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah. This brings up, I love this idea of digestion and it's Mm -hmm. something that I feel like um, oftentimes one thinks about in relation to how much practice one has engaged. So, you know, both the actual yogic practice itself, but also um, uh, uh, the, the, the practice of teaching, but the, another thing that, that kind of occurs to me and what I was sort of wondering how it fits into this um, sort of um, hierarchy, I guess, for lack of a better word, that we're talking about is is yoga philosophy and the way in which it's historically been distilled in a yoga class. So I'm thinking of the classic model of someone teaching a Dharma talk at the beginning of class. And I've been in that situation many times where I'm a little bit Eye rolling. As far as I can tell, Sharon and David invented that. Okay. So that well, that's an interesting. That's an interesting (laughs) point because I did do my initial. I mean, much of my initial practice was at Jiva Mukti, actually here in London originally, and then I and then I moved on to New York. But I remember thinking. I mean, just so many times, eye roll, eye roll, eye roll. Just feeling like it was sort of it was pat and sort of undigested. And so I'm. Uh, so there's. Oh, don't this leave out the um, the video of slaughterhouses. That's always, always a big part of the. The video message. of slaughter. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They were very much into that. Oh indo- yes, that yes, indoctrination yes. The, the vegan, vegan, thing. Thing. vegan yeah. indoctrination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, ahimsa, Leslie. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, you know, directed at whom? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, that's uh, the students who were not vegans. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> or we're going to get ourselves in trouble. Um, so uh, so I guess the, one of the things that I'm interested in where it plays in is this, there is this kind of, uh, let's say, role or position of almost like a spiritual advisor that is sort of implicitly read into the identity oftentimes of a yoga teacher by students, mm-hmm. maybe not in all contexts, if especially if they've only ever taken a yoga class at a fitness center, they don't sure. think of that as necessarily involved. But, you know, there is, and I remember, I don't teach uh, asana as much anymore, but certainly there is this perception of the teacher as somehow having a sort of access to spiritual knowledge, yogic knowledge, in a way that they may not necessarily have, especially if they've been digesting the yoga in a particular way. So I'm wondering when, where that plays into this idea of the instructor, the teacher, the educator, the therapist. Like, is there a role for that, or is that another kind of angle entirely? I think there's a place for, in the education of a yoga educator, a place for understanding some of the basic dynamics of projection. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just yoga teachers who are, who are put on the pedestal. It's anyone at the front of a room in any kind of position of authority. Yeah. You become a blank screen for people's projections and issues that they have um, that have developed around people at the fronts of rooms, whether they're, you know, teachers or, or priests or drill sergeants or, you know, um, gurus 
or whomever. Yeah. Uh, and that's a basic fundamental human uh, dynamic that is just as important as understanding how your lungs work or what your diaphragm does, mm -hmm. you know? So, and, and I think within a yogic model of knowledge, it's very easily placed in the same conversation you're having about the koshas, you know? Like, sure, it's, it's, it's all well and good to learn the 19 parts of the astral body, if that's you know, <laughs> how you're teaching the koshas, you know? Yeah. The, you know, the antakarana and the five indriyas and karma indriyas, whatever. So, fine, right? But, but within that, let's have a talk about actual human psychological emotional dynamics and what you're going to be hit with mm -hmm. at the front of a room yeah when you start talking and leading people uh through a, a series of practices that basically opens them up to their own mm. embodiment to their own inner experience you know it shouldn't be it, it shouldn't be a surprise to people when they start being hit with these dynamics it should have been part of their right training that's very interesting. You know, as, as a topic, you know, and we, we, we didn't have the foresight to put that as a number of hours spent doing that yeah. exploration specifically when we came up with, you know, 20 hours of anatomy and however many hours of philosophy and so on. What is that module, if you were to kind of, if you were to give it a title and define it, what is that module? Um, I would, I don't know, student-teacher dynamics. Okay. Um, you know, uh, the, the psychology of the classroom. Yeah, um, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's, you know, you don't want to have to learn that on the fly mm -hmm. once you are starting to be embedded in it and having a problem with it. I mean, look, people who are explicitly trained in that, meaning, you know, psychoanalysts and psychologists and, you know, uh, psychotherapists, they have issues with it. Yeah. And it's part of their training. That's why you learn about transference and counter-transference and why if you're a therapist, you have to have a therapist who you can go to right, to, yes. to discuss your counter-transference issues and mm. all that. Just, just, just watch The Sopranos mm. and see how that works. It was depicted actually quite well. Yeah. You know? So is it safe to say that actually that would be a, a nice evolution of our yoga teaching model to actually it require some sort of... I guess maybe for lack of a better term, it's some kind of accountability model where you, I mean, well, that is built into the yogic system, right? You had your teacher, your, your, your guru, uh, you know, as, as rife with, um, discomfort that is, that term is for many people, but it is, you know, historically what you was required to kind of be within a lineage and to ensure that, you know, things were, you weren't off track and for whatever, in, a, in whatever way. And that seems to have been, pretty much completely um, uh, dissolved partly by abuses of that have come to light of teachers. So I wanted to talk to you about this, actually. Um, well, the, the, mod the hierarchical model maybe is, is crumbling, but yeah. the underlying um, psychodynamics that give rise to that are just human. Those will never go. Of course. Yeah, yeah. but how do we, I guess, reclaim the 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 benefits and the utility of the teacher student relationship for as teachers in an in a in a kind of culture in which more and more people are like that's that's sort of intrinsically abusive and the teachers in within me and I don't need any well teacher. I think we're already moving in a good direction that way because of all of the focus on trauma informed right. yoga. You know, and 
when, when that started to be a conversation in the yoga world, I kind of looked at some of the recommendations that were coming out. Um, and as I sort of read the list of points that need to be emphasized to make a, a learning environment uh, trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive, whatever, I'm like, this is just good teaching. Mm-hmm. This is just creating a good safe classroom environment for everybody, whether they have trauma in their background or not, you know, giving people options, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, if you're not comfortable with this, you can do that or whatever. Absolutely. That's just called modification and adaptation. Jessica Char was really big on that. The big one is don't tell students what they should be feeling. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and that's a, that's a, a big one invite them to have an experience and notice what they're noticing rather than, you know, saying, if you do this, that will happen. Yeah. Um, that's a, a, a big one. Yeah. You know, understanding that not everybody is going to respond in the way you expect to the things that you're saying. Like, and, and it, 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 people are surprised when I point out what that really means in practice. It means don't tell people that they're going to have a relaxing experience in Shavasana. <laughs> Of the child <laughs> yeah we're gonna we're gonna do relax calling shavasana final relaxation like this right. pose of shavasana yeah. is final relaxation many people find it very horribly triggering. unrelaxing <laughs> exactly we had this discussion just yesterday in the workshop i taught you know and i let people put I, I invited people to go into whatever position they wanted at the end of the class some of them were in classic shavasana some of them were in what we call constructive rest which is sort of an internally rotated yeah. thing where you're crossing midline with your knees and your arms. Some of them were curled up on their side on the floor. It was like, great, you know, I don't, why would I have a problem with people making a choice that works for them if my goal is for them to be relaxed? So, you know, I think we're, we're moving in a good direction um, in terms of understanding the psychodynamics of a classroom by having these, these sort of trauma-informed yeah. conversations. But I, I think we need to recognize that what makes something safe for someone who has a, a trauma profile is just good pedagogy. It's just yes. good teaching. Yeah. And, and it, it, we need to kind of acknowledge that, that, that that's what we're talking about. Um, and, and not assuming this position of all knowing authority at the front of the room Yeah, or, or maybe not assuming it, but not deflecting it when it's projected on you. Yeah. Jessica Char was a master at that, by the way. And he, you know, he was like Teflon. You'd see people trying to run all kinds of trips on him all the time. And he very gracefully and and um, uh, benevolently would sidestep it without making the person feel like an idiot, mm. you know. Um, and so that, that's been a real role model. Yeah. So this brings up an interesting question that I like to ask. Um, uh are because as you were talking about being uncomfortable in shavasana, mm. um, the question that, that arises for me is: Is well, there? I, I want to make a distinction there. Can okay. I just clarify some yeah. nuance there? Sometimes in yoga, we the whole point is to deal with whatever discomfort arises, yeah, and see what it is about a situation that's sort of triggering us, and see if there's a way to release into it so yes. that it's not uncomfortable. Yeah. It's not like all discomfort should be avoided. Yes. But there's a big okay. difference between that and and asking someone to do something that's clearly triggering for them that's shutting them down mm. and and denying them the the um, the space in their nervous system to make that choice. 
not to be triggered. And that's, that's, that takes some skill, you know, but to me, that's, that's the big conversation about yoga, about yoga practice. You can go straight to Patanjali's definition of practice at the beginning of the second chapter. Tapas, Swadhyaya, Ishwara, Pranidhana. Tapas is working against the grain. You're encountering Mm -hmm. some resistance. You're working outside your samskara, you know, intentionally. You're intentionally provoking perhaps some reaction that you're just, some knee-jerk reaction you're having to a situation and then giving yourself the space to not react or to respond differently. That's tapas. Ishwara Pranidhana, though, that's about surrendering to something that's not, at least maybe not right now, or maybe not by its nature, perhaps going to respond to your choices. Mm-hmm. It's not under your control. something which by its nature you can only surrender to, because that's the relationship to have with those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And Swadhyaya, of course, is, well, you know, you need this self-reflective um, attitude to be able to distinguish one from the other. This is, this is a, a living embodiment of the serenity prayer, mm. you know, where you ask for the strength to change the things you can, the serenity to accept the things you cannot, and the wisdom to know the difference. To me, that is that sutra. Yeah. You know? yeah. And even more powerfully, because I teach breath, that's the breath, because it's both voluntary and autonomic. Mm-hmm. So the very thing that keeps you alive is the teacher of this principle when you start working with the breath, because you run into situations where you're controlling the breath and pacing it and, you know, uh, shaping it in particular ways, which you can only do up to a point at which point you lose control and something autonomic takes over. It's an amazing process when you, when you view practice through that lens of that equation, for lack of a better term, tapas, vajaya, ishvara, pranidana. So just to be clear, not all discomfort needs to be avoided. Right. Not all pleasure needs to be indulged. Yes, but how do you know the difference? Exactly. You know, yeah. That's the swadhyaya. Yeah. That's great. That's ex- actually exactly what I was going to ask because I sometimes <laughs> I sometimes get a little bit annoyed um, when I, I, I was in a class the other day and they said, you know, um, just do whatever is ple- pleasing and pleasurable. And, you know, I can see to the extent and the reasoning behind sure. wanting to, you know, lean towards that yeah. then lean towards pain and, you know, some sort of austere practice. But it's just true that, like, poses are not always comfortable and um, and and I sometimes like to ask the question of whether or not we're o- trauma over informed in the sense sure, that sure. in the sense that everything has become a trigger. Uh, and right. Where's, and where's the challenge then? Yes. Well, uh, I, I go again to, to Patanjali in, in the uh, Tirasuka formulation mm-hmm. that we find again in the second chapter um, where there's a Tirasuka of a learning environment. So the kind of classes that you're um, describing, well, we'll look at it this way. What is the stira and sukha of a learning environment? I think the sukha is this attitude of inquiry. We're in the in UK, so I say inquire instead of inquiry. <laughs> um, where you're giving people the, the space to have their own experience, to have it be theirs, you know, where you're not directing them towards a certain outcome, but you're saying, what do you notice? Like, try this, try that, see what you notice. That's, that's uh, a model for introducing inquiry into a process of teaching something. Mm-hmm. But then the question is, what is it that you're teaching? There has to be some technique that you're learning. That's the stira. That's what gives the structure or the, the, um, the support for whatever's going on in the learning environment. Because if you're all in the sukha 
sort of inquiry stuff. It's like, yeah, just do what feels good, roll around, I'll put on some music, you know, check in with me in a half hour, we'll, and, you know, we'll see what happened. There's no form there. And that, that can make people anxious mm-hmm. if there's not enough structure. Yeah. Right? Just as anxious as it makes some people to have too much structure and not have inquiry, where you're saying, do this, do it right, here's the technique, here's how to do it properly, and if you do that, you'll get the result. And if you don't, it's your fault. Yeah. We've been in classes like that. We don't need to brand them. We know who teaches that way, right? So, mm-hmm. so there's too much stira, not enough sukha. You know, too much technique, not enough inquiry. So you have to balance the space and the boundaries in any situation. And in a learning environment, I think that's a formula that, that I've come to understand needs to be acknowledged. You know? So it, it goes to that question of, yeah, at what point are we overindulging you know, this? Just you know, We don't want to challenge you because you may get triggered kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you go too far in the other direction, it's like, you know, you're, you're just like triggering people all over the place because you're being very um, reductionistic and, and didactic and you're, 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 you're treating people as if they're just these mechanisms where if they perform the techniques correctly, you know, they'll get the result. Mm-hmm. And if not, it's their fault, you know. And the main difference I see between an inquiry and a technique is that there's no wrong answer to an inquiry. None. That's why it's safe. Even if your response to a question like, what are you noticing, is, I'm confused. That's great. You're recognizing you're confused. That's the beginning of all knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's like Charles would always say, that the recognition of confusion is itself a form of clarity. It's a beautiful quote, you know, because it makes it safe to be confused. Mm-hmm. So there's no wrong answer to an inquiry. But there's a wrong answer to a technique. If there weren't, there wouldn't be a technique. You know, you can do Kapalabhati upside down. It's not Kapalabhati. You know, you're pushing down like you're pooping. That's not the exercise, right? You're breathing in rhythm, but it's not Kapalabhati, right? Kapalabhati is about the exhale traveling upward. So, you know, the, the, the difference is techniques have right and wrong answers. And the whole purpose of learning a technique is to see where you are in relation to it. How much of this can I accomplish? And the aspects of this technique that are difficult for me, what's in the way, right? Like, you know, you learn a new way to breathe so you can unlearn your old way of breathing. You know, you're, you're not doing an asana to accomplish the asana so much as to undo what's in the way of the asana. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a subtle, nuanced perspective that I think is often lost uh, in the pursuit of accomplishing something for the sake of it and, being, and having this idea promoted that you'll only get the benefit once you master it as if this, the benefit is somehow tied up inside the technique and you have to unlock it by perfecting the technique. I think everything you learn along the way in the direction of mastering a technique is the benefit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a process orientation mm. rather than a, a goal orientation. Yeah. Because once you, once you achieve the, the technique and you can do it easily, it's like, well, what good is it anymore? Mm-hmm. You know, just to show off, do something else. That's where another Desik Char quote becomes relevant, where he says, our yoga practice always has to be a little more clever than our habits, which is just another sort of restatement of the tapas principle. Mm. Think about it. Just a little more clever than our habits. Yeah, our habits are quite clever. <laughs> so we have to be a little more clever than our habits. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. So I want to go to this, this question about um, kind of being accessible and inclusive as a teacher, which, you know, touches on this trauma-informed subject that we've been talking about. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm wondering about the role of this, like the student's discernment to some extent. So like, 
I, I feel like there's this there's been this movement in recent years toward the idea that like a teacher should be universally accessible and as, as inclusive as possible. And of course, I agree with that. But isn't there also inclusive is possible as inclusive as possible okay. uh-huh. um, in the sense that, you know, one should be trauma informed. One should, you know, one should ameliorate one's teaching style in such a way that, you know, people come, people feel like they belong in that classroom. And that, of course, has to do with, you know, issues around racism and ableism and all of this stuff. Mm. So then, but then I guess the question always emerges that is there actually such a thing as a universally accessible teacher? How as a teacher, do because of course the student doesn't really come to the classroom knowing if this, if this teacher is right for them. And, so, and I've heard a lot of people go to a class and it's clear that the teacher just wasn't right for them or the style wasn't right. And they, laugh, and they left and they were like, oh yeah, I tried yoga, it wasn't for me. You know? sure. um, so what is the role of the teacher in actually cultivating in their students the idea that you know, not all approaches are going to be the approaches that are pragmatically, you know, best for the student. I'm thinking also maybe a, a good, maybe an, an example would be because you're a teacher that focuses so much on the breath, like have you encountered like students with trauma around the breath Absolutely. such that maybe there's and another... You, don't let, you get them to focus on something else. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you have a solution for those situations. Well, you have to. If you, if you, if you um, want to make what you're doing accessible the other yeah. thing to remember is i'm a body worker so i work with people one-on-one quite a yeah. bit so it's it's clearly about that one person in that context and and a lot of what i do in groups is informed by the sort of things i've learned in one-on-one sessions mm-hmm. so there, there's that dynamic going on in my experience yeah over the last 40 what is it 44 years <laughs> um it's a long time a few years older than me yeah yeah so um well, when, when I hear you ask that question, I keep thinking, like, you know, what if, what if we were having a talk about a, a musician? Like, and should someone transpose your question to the field of music? Should a musician make his music accessible to everybody? Right. Um, who could potentially be listening to it? Uh, so that they don't change the station or go on. I, I, I think I think what you're suggesting is actually literally impossible for a single right. human being to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and for a musician to be in in the studio or at their piano or with their guitar composing with everyone in mind who could potentially and, and not wanting to offend anybody or wanting to attract everybody, what are you going to end up with? Yeah, you know, if you if you're trying to appeal to everybody. You're actually, you know, writing for Appealing nobody. Appealing to no one. <laughs> There's, yeah, um, I think the the question really is, what is authentic for that individual teacher? What mm-hmm. do they connect with? What what has transformed their life and their experience to the extent that they're willing to invest their time and energy and money in their own education and their own training? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, let's let's face it. You know, I don't know. I don't know very many people, maybe you do, who go into this field because it's such a lucrative way to <laughs> to make a living, you know? I mean, maybe some people have an eye towards bigger investments and they see, uh, you know, a place in the market where they can profit. But let's let's face it, you know, this is, this is not like, you know, investment banking. Yeah. You know, 
Um, so there has to be something driving you. Uh, that's something very personal that's driving you absolutely yeah. to to pursue that kind of education in this field. And unless that is what you're out there to share, like this is what transformed me. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the insights I had. This is how my life got better yeah. from practicing yoga. And this is the place from which I am going to share with you. Then, you know, what are we doing? We're just we're just trying to be the least offensive people possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say that if you're if you're being true to yourself by definition, there's a segment of humanity out there that's going to be offended by you, mm-hmm. by by your values, mm-hmm. and that's not a problem. That's just reality. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean. There's, there's people out there who, who voted for folks who we think are idiots because of the votes they cast. <laughs> and I'm not saying which side of the aisle that... Because that applies to everybody. We know, Leslie. <laughs> no, no, no. no. But, but still, because yeah, we're, we're in the yoga industry, which has a predominant sort of politics yep. attached to it. But my point is, it works the other way around as well. Yes, yes. Should those people be denied the, the benefit of having a more embodied experience? Of, 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 of their life and of their, their breath, you know? And if, and if some of these truths that we espouse are truly universal, won't that in the long run make them better human beings? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not, it's not guaranteed. I mean, you know, unless you're using the powerful tools of yoga to disassemble your neuroses, you're just going to become a powerful neurotic, right? <laughs> and we've seen that happen too. Yeah. So it's not a given that someone's going to be transformed for the betterment of all humanity yeah. by doing yoga, but why deny them the opportunity? Mm-hmm. You know, by saying, "Oh, you know, this this whole group of people isn't worthy of it." Because you know, yoga is for everybody, but that means that everybody who's motivated to teach yoga, if they're true to themselves, they will. You'll find your audience. Mm-hmm. You'll find your tribe. You'll find your people, and and you know, maybe maybe those people aren't interested in trauma sensitivity you know maybe people who have a trauma background don't belong in your classroom that's fine i don't why why should there be a problem with that and why should anyone assume the authority to be the yoga police or the yoga education police to insist that in order to be a teacher you must master these things Mm -hmm. you know so you know the the alliance has taken a very yoga alliance taking a very strong stand in terms of social justice and you know, diversity, inclusion, and, you know, whatever. Um, and that's that's fine. But you know what? That's not for everybody. Does that mean that you're out as far as yoga is concerned? Mm-hmm. You know? And, 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 and the people who agree with you don't have access to, to yoga? I don't know. These, these are interesting questions to ask on a sort of larger institutional level. Yeah. That's very interesting, and I like that you're we're bringing this up because um, I feel like there is there's sort of a middle path somehow being suggested between the two points that we're talking about. Because on the one hand, we're talking about um, a kind of ex- extreme, um, maybe ideologically driven um, uh, demand for inclu- inclusion, and then there is on the other hand the you know, you're talking about speaking from your truth as a teacher, but I could see where, like, if I, 
didn't address my own shit. Um, I could become, you know, an authoritarian figure and I'm, but, but I'm following my trap path as a teacher. I've been watching Teal Swan and a lot of other cult figures. recently. I'm obsessed with cults um, at the moment. I find it really fascinating for a lot of reasons that we don't need to get into, but, but one, what, what uh, kind of I observe is like, you know, there can be this incredible um, heart driven commitment to one's, um, connection to whatever teachings they feel are necessary to transmit, and yet still this kind of this this um, strong arm, almost authoritarian disposition that we could say is reflected in some past guru figures and why some of these communities fell out. So, but aren't it, people being stronger into DEI also? DEI, the diversity, uh, inclusion. What's the E? In? Equity and inclusion. Equity and inclusion. Yeah, I mean. You know, there, there's like loyalty oaths to DEI principles that that are being enacted in the workplace, and and for all intents and purposes by the Yoga Alliance. So you're talking. I'm, I'm just saying there's another point of view. On yeah, this. you're suggesting that there is a form of DEI authoritarianism. Of course there is. Mm-hmm. Of course there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, look at how people are going to react to what I'm saying here into your microphone. Yes, I was just going to say we're you treading know, on controversial. <laughs> it's 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 controversial if people aren't willing to talk about it yeah uh and and the fact that you know for a fact that there's folks out there who are going to hear these words i just said and want to cancel me out of existence mm-hmm. that's not authoritarian mm-hmm. come on yeah yeah so what is the middle path because i've also heard you saying previously it's not that you're not it's like even bringing up trauma informed. I mean, you you are interested in like in in the kinds of narratives that allow us to be more, um, let's say, compassionate and understanding of our students. Mm-hmm. And so there is a kind of let's say DEI light in mm-hmm. your perspective. <laughs> so I'm just curious then, with a lot of these shifts in. You know, and 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 again, I agree with you that there are some certain politically driven um, uh, uh, ideas about the way that yoga should be taught right now that I think are that are worthy of criticism and sure. worthy of real deep reflection. But I'm curious of with all of these changes, taking out the kind of authoritarian element, like how has your has your pedagogy changed over the years? Mm. Like, what have you? Um, like what have you reflected on and and shifted in your own approach to your teaching? Much more in the direction of what we've been discussing of, of unders of, of, you know, and it's interesting because it's somewhat reflected in the work that Amy and I did, Amy Matthews and Mm -hmm. I did when we were working on this current third edition of yoga anatomy so we looked at the words we had written 10 years before in the second edition. Uh, and there were like a million copies of those words out there in the world. And we were like, oh, no, we would never say these things this way now. You know, yeah, it involved changing some pronoun stuff to make it more inclusive. Absolutely. Yeah. But um, also just, you know, talking about the diaphragm and what the diaphragm does. Mm-hmm. We wanted the reader to have the most embodied experience that they could. So we would say your diaphragm, like when your diaphragm does this this or that may happen, you know. And so we made it more of an inquiry rather than uh, a directed kind of the diaphragm does this. Because in reality, there's no such thing as the diaphragm floating around as an abstract platonic diaphragm. People have diaphragms. And everyone who has one can experience it, right? So 
to, to look at all of the language I use in the classroom from that perspective. Um, and it, it takes a lot because, you know, we have our habits are very clever. And as, particularly as teachers, we have little blocks of, you know, verbal kinds of um, boilerplate that we use when we're teaching. And to break into the boilerplate and, and look at where it was being uh, not inclusive, where it was potentially triggering someone and I could say it in a way that would be more accessible or, or more um, inviting to have an experience, mm-hmm. to, to have an inquiry. You know? So that's a constant thing that's, that, that um, I'm aware of that having been a real focus of mine, I would say, in the last 10 or 15 years when I have been more traveling and teaching and doing workshops yeah. away from home. Uh, and and seeing all the different people all over the world and their different contexts and their different levels of understanding uh, of yoga and of English, frankly, because you know there's only a few places where I need a translator. Yeah. Um, you know, like J- Japan or um, in, in France, we had a workshop where it was being translated into French. But you know, you know how how to what's interesting working with a translator is interesting because I, I I'm using half the number of words I would ordinarily use. Because I'm, I'm pausing while they're being translated. Mm-hmm. So I get to think about what's coming out of my mouth next as the translator's working. And so I have to make each word mean twice as much, mm-hmm. you know, Yeah. because I get half as many of them. Um, so that's a major evolution as far as I'm concerned uh, of um, understanding this dynamic of inquiry versus technique in the classroom. That's a major evolution. I've only identified that in terms of tirasuka, I'd say in the last five or six years, mm-hmm. you know, explicitly having that realization that, yeah, there's a, a tirasuka of a learning environment and it needs to be balanced for it to be successful just as much as a cell's membrane needs to be balanced between permeability and stability. Mm-hmm. You know, these are all biologically based insights. Yeah. When you look at how life works, how cells work, there's a tirasuka to the cell and there's a prana and a pana to the cell, you know, and then the membrane, which is semi-permeable, has to let in what it needs, reject what it doesn't, keep in what it needs, and excrete what it doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's an intelligence in terms that can be understood as a stirasuka going on at the most fundamental levels of life. And anything that is living and successful um, has to have that same kind of, negotiate that same kind of balance. And so a learning environment is just as alive. Yeah. And, and so that's been a major evolution for me in mm. just the things I've been sharing. And that's like the last, that Tirasuka thing is the last five or six years. And then just all the traveling and teaching has, has really got me uh, thinking about some of these issues in a, a clearer way. And not the least of which is the fact that we give students a survey to fill out. For every workshop I teach, it's an online thing that they can log into. And, and we explicitly request um, critical feedback. Mm. We love the great quotes of how you loved it and all that. And maybe we'll ask to use it in promotional material. But, you know, that's the easy part Yeah, for any teacher to get praise. The tough part is the stuff that, you know, tends to walk out the door and you never hear from them again because something you said or you did didn't sit right with them. And the, 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 the critical 
survey responses that we've gotten over the years, some of them were repetitive, meaning there, was, there were similar um, issues that people had across different workshops. Those are the ones we really pay attention to because that's where I have a blind spot. Mm. And that's where I really need to learn something. And that's the hardest stuff to hear because it makes your stomach turn. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and we, I go through this whole talk in every workshop about how important it is for all of us as educators to, to give some opportunity to our students because no one likes conflict. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, and this is again about the dynamics between people at the front of a room and people who are, you know, being taught by them. You know, we have to understand as educators that, that we are almost guaranteed to be exposed to far more praise than criticism. Yeah. That's what turns into cults. Yeah. Really. Yeah. When you're surrounded by people who only agree with you, who are afraid uh, to, or not even registering the, the sketchy stuff because uh, we naturally avoid conflict and people in authority who are accepting those projections, they are unable to distinguish um, criticism from disrespect. Yes, yeah. Right? And that's a cult. Yeah. So, you know, I go to great lengths in the workshops to say, please take some time. You don't have to do it right away. Maybe you want to think about it for a day or a week or a month. We don't take these things down. They're there forever. But log in at some point, and if anything didn't sit right with you or you have some critical feedback or anything at all, as long as you deliver it politely, right? Um, please let us know. We really do read these things, and this is how we improve what we're doing. Yeah. So that's been a major um, growth point for me since we've been traveling and teaching and putting these surveys out there. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, that's, I think that's such a great teaching for everybody to, who's teach who is a teacher who does these, who does workshops and has the opportunity to get feedback because yeah, you're right. I mean, taking on that negative feedback or critical feedback, let's say is, is how you grow. I mean, how, how are you going to actually be able to refine what you offer if you're not allowing in that sort of, sure. um, that sort of narrative? Right, and it's this—it's this—it's the stuff people least like to deliver, and you least like to hear, mm -hmm. and that's what makes it so important. And I, you know, in, in honesty, I think that was some of the spirit of what the alliance was trying to do back when they were introducing this social credentialing thing. You know, is to have a form for feedback that could be anonymous if it needed to be, because there's repercussions in real life if you're in a training program and maybe you want to be hired as a teacher by the studio that trained you, yet you have some critical things to say about the way you were trained. It's like, how is that going to sit? Yeah. What's that going to do to your prospects of gaining some employment at the place that you have some criticism for? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and then, you know, how do you prevent people from gaming the system and just flaming other people who because they have some personal issue or vendetta that they want to enact and they're using, you know, a, a rating system to to you know to destroy someone that that you know they're having some beef with yeah so yeah. you know there's there's uh, problematic ways of you know that reviewing yes mechanisms can be abused yeah right? can they do it anonymously I've I've had rather lengthy discussions with the folks who were in leadership uh, of the alliance at the time mm -hmm. um, you know, Andrew Tanner is one of the people who's a good friend of mine and. Uh, Brandon Hartzell, who was the, the president of the Alliance at the time, they were the ones who were trying to figure out how to get this to work. Um, but then new leadership came in and 
other priorities kind of took over. Mm. But there are ways to make it work. But yeah, because I feel like when the not when you can leave your feedback, I mean, I can see the reasoning and the justification for having anonymous, being able to leave it anonymously. But also, it does open up. Leaves it open for abuse. Abuse, exactly. And I mean, I've seen you know several people who have been taken down um, through these sites. These essentially. Well, you're talking to one. You're talking to someone that has been at the other end of attempts to take me down through anonymous online. Uh, on attacks, just fabricated stuff. So, yeah. And how did you, how did you take on and resolve that within yourself? Within myself? Yeah. Like, and that must've been, I mean, well, I mean, within myself, I felt the mess. I know when something's not true. Right. I know that, but, um, fortunately it's just a couple of isolated people who, you know, whenever we did have one event canceled, uh, Mm. uh, in, in Portland, Mm. Um, well, that would be, that's where it would be. <laughs> that's where it would be. That's one of the places where it would be. Beautiful place. Where, where they claim they couldn't guarantee my physical safety if I showed up to teach this workshop. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, some people didn't like some things I said in an interview that I did with Michelle Goldberg about the whole Jiva Mukti mm. scandal thing that they had a while back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some teacher abuse things that were going on. Yes, I remember that. The Ruth thing. Yeah, the yeah. Ruth thing. Yeah. So I was quoted there and, you know, I, I wasn't aware of the fact that I was the only one she was interviewing who was willing to go on record. I should have asked. Mm. Michelle didn't do anything wrong, you know, because she's a reporter and, you know, I didn't say anything was off the record or whatever. But, um, yeah, in, in retrospect, I could have said things in, in a better, more sensitive way. I didn't say anything that wasn't true uh, in, in, my, it, from, in my view. Yeah. But um, it, it really, it really rubbed people the wrong way. Yeah, and then people jumped on the bandwagon, and, yeah. and people, you know, this was early. I think up. this was early on in that whole conversation, right? I feel this like was, I this is when cancel culture was just being emerging, recognized as yeah. for what it was. Yeah, yeah when um, people were sort of a little more loose, loose lipped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I agree with the the impetus and the and the impulse. I disagree with where it gets taken, like mm. the 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 results of the inquiry, for lack of a better word. And I think that there's a, I think that it it just gets taken too far in some instances. Absolutely. Yeah. Like once you commit down a path and you're on an ideological crusade, yeah, you know, and you're all in, you know, um, just certain people need to get thrown under the bus. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And you're also. And um, I have, you want to see the tire marks? <laughs> Are they on your back? <laughs> I mean, and 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 you know, oh, and also, I think, I mean, oh gosh, I mean, we'll probably get in trouble. But um, I think that also we're already like, deep in this shit. Here. That's the brand, you know, the yeah. brand. The when you when you when your brand is sort of taking down others sure. for you know missteps, misstatements, and um, you know, not sort of. I suppose. Well, in all fairness, Matthew offered me the chance to um, recant or retract or okay. otherwise, um, you know, uh, justify what I said, and and I doubled down. Mm-hmm. So I see. It, it was. I, it, you so know, you dug your own, like you dug your own grave. It's not like I wasn't warned. I, I see. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you dug your own grave, Leslie. There's nothing we can do. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but I have to live with myself in the end. You know. Tire tracks and all. Tire tracks and all. Yeah. You know, those yeah. that, that's what builds character. Yeah. 
So I, I want to go back to kind of, uh, you know, your pedagogy has changed. Um, we'll go back to your kind of your work. And I'm, I'm curious because obviously, as most people know, you've written this book on yoga anatomy with Amy Matthews. That's yeah. that's decades old at this point. Uh, 2007 is the original. What? First edition came oh, out wow. in 07. Okay. So actually it was published just before I did my teacher training. So, okay. It's mm-hmm. not as I, th- what I got it, I remember thinking, oh, it's been around a little bit longer. Was it part of your teacher training? The book? Oh yeah. I mean, it's part most, I mean, I feel like More at the time, yeah. <laughs> at the time I felt like it was in every yoga teacher training really when, I mean, I did it at, at 2009. Can you, can you say that again? You say that it should be in every yoga teacher training? <clears throat> the, never mind. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, I think Leslie would like you to include uh, the <laughs> Yoga Anatomy okay. book and it's in, in your yoga teacher training. And it's a great book. But I'm curious how it's evolved. And, mm. uh, you know, speaking of critical feedback, I'm sure, sure people have suggested that certain things should be included that weren't. Or oh, yeah. Yeah. How, has the, how has the book or how has your, how has your approach to Yoga Anatomy evolved since mm. that book? Well, it's evolved quite a bit because in, in, since the book was published in 2007, I've continued my education in in anatomy uh mostly in the lab at this point because we mm-hmm. do uh cadaver dissection um and uh we've started to lead our own cadaver dissection workshops uh not me and amy but me and uh, a colleague of mine um laurie nemitz uh who has a vast experience in in the lab and is a master dissector um and uh so but prior to that i was doing most of my work with uh, gil headley uh, who's a real pioneer in the um, you know, sort of week-long cadaver dissection experience for non-medical people. And mm-hmm. that's where I had my first experiences of, of uh, learning through dissection. Uh, so that certainly has been an, an evolution. Um, and, you know, more and more uh, understanding, and, and this is something we added uh, in the third edition, a whole brand new chapter called Anatomy is a Story mm-hmm. that Amy and I co-wrote uh, just to let people... Anatomy is a story. Mm. Well, it is. It's a story yeah. told with a sharp instrument. The word itself means to cut up. Mm. Tome is a sharp instrument, right? So anatomy means to cut, to study something by cutting it up. And and the minute you, 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 you cut something up, you know, it isn't what it was before you made that incision. And, and the decision that informs the incision, <laughs> okay, means that these things that were connected in life are no longer connected. And you can say that something begins and ends here, and the next thing begins and ends here. And now you have, you know, parts and structures that you can name. And it's very, very useful, mm-hmm. obviously, to be able to do that in certain contexts. Now, now yoga is more about understanding the connectivity between things and the interrelationship between things. Um, and so... Uh, a yoga version of anatomy, a yoga version of cutting into something to understand it is more like using your consciousness, using your capacity to focus your awareness on your inner experience Mm -hmm. to learn about what's going on in there. Uh, And so that's no less a story than cutting with a sharp instrument. It's all a story. The question is, you know, what, what, purpose is the story for mm-hmm. you know and and the main difference of course between cutting with a sharp instrument is the more you do that cutting the less and less this thing that you're studying resembles uh what it was when it was alive at the end of a week of cadaver dissecting we've got a bunch of bags with things in it and yeah. skeletonized and you know 
you know, it looks a lot less than, the donor looks a lot less than the way they looked at the beginning of the week. But the more you cut into your living system with your consciousness, the more alive it becomes. Mm -hmm. right? and, and both views are useful and necessary and uh, incredibly informative. And so the way my understanding has evolved over the years is to negotiate these two worlds and see what relations they have to each other and how we can create learning experiences that uh, embrace both views. You know, how can you be more effective with your own consciousness working itself around in your system, which is a view of yoga practice, how can you be more successful doing that by learning how to do it with a scalpel? Mm -hmm. and, and, and what can be learned there? And how are the different ways you can dissect that honor the integrity and the layers as opposed to, you know, you can hold the scalpel, you know, facing down, like perpendicular to this issue and cut down through the layers and separate one thing from another that way. And that, that's usually what regional anatomy is about. That's how medical students are trained and mm -hmm. surgeons are trained. But what Gil Headley pioneered and other people like, you know, Tom Myers and even some of the older anatomists, when you see their work, they went in layers. They were holding the scalpel more parallel to the planes of tissue and seeing where are the layers. Mm, yeah. And, and where's the integrity of the layers? So you get the whole anatomy trains model that Tom pioneered, right? The fascia. And so the, the, yeah. the, 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 the myofascial meridians. Yeah. So, you know, there's that way of using a scalpel. So it's not just one way to cut with a sharp instrument either. Yeah. So we, we try to bring those two conversations together in the lab. Mm. And that's that'll never end. I don't know any arrogant anatomists who I, I I'm sure there are arrogant anatomists out there, but the ones that we hang out with, yeah, they're so humbled by this thing that we're studying mm -hmm. and the infinite um, variation and variety that we're encountering in the lab, you know, there, there's no thought that you could ever completely master it as a topic. Yeah, it's always showing you new things. It's always showing you new views. It's always, you know, producing stuff that you haven't seen before, mm -hmm. and and that's the fascination of that. Yeah, I think that's just a beautiful metaphor for the, the way I think knowledge acquisition should be in general. Like the the idea that there's some sort of finite set of you know data points that one must memorize before one has a fully fleshed out understanding of something seems like an outdated model and that there is a kind of almost infinite unfolding of of an evolving of one's knowledge about something because we're always changing as well right sure well the thing that's that is being used to understand is always changing that's our brain yeah right you know i mean Ultimately, you know, uh, anyone who studies the brain knows that we've just barely scratched the surface of even being able to write, ask the right questions about how it works, let alone mm. have solid answers. Yeah. You know, there's all these, all these memes that, that come up from time to time about, you know, neurophysiology like mirror neurons, and that's been debunked. And, you know, the left-right hemisphere model is, is not quite what we thought it was. And, you know, we've got neuroplasticity, and now we've got the polyvagal theory. And, you know... The, yeah been around long enough you see these 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 waves of interest that that purport to you know give you a model to finally understand some of the things we're observing about how the brain works but mm. it's the most complex object in the known universe the yeah human brain and you know using it to understand itself that's a whole other level of mind fuck yeah <laughs> 
So one of these waves of interest that you were, you were just mentioning, waves of interest, is is functional anatomy. And I'm, curi- I'm curious what you think about this approach because it seems like it's it's become popular with certain, I don't know, communities of yoga teachers. Um, is that, does that inform the work that you do? Are you... I don't do you know, s- I don't know what the term functional anatomy is distinguishing itself from. Right. What, 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 what's the alternative? I don't really, I guess functional anatomy is sort of, um, you know, rather than this sort of, I guess, cutting incision model where one is looking sort of objectively at the parts of the body and it's about the relationships between, you know, it's about, I guess it's about start, start studying kinesiology, you're into functional anatomy. I see. You know, so I, so I they've rebranded rebranded kinesiology. Well, I don't know if that's what it is. I, honestly, right. I don't use that term. Okay. And and um, I know I've encountered it out there, but I haven't taken the trouble to understand. Yeah. What the differentia is. Yeah. You know, the genus is. Yeah, we're studying the body. Uh, I know what the word anatomy means from a variety of perspectives, but um, I, I'm assuming it's not being distinguished from non-functional anatomy, mm-hmm. you know? So the only reason that someone like me would study anatomy is to understand how the body functions. Yeah. To, to understand what we're seeing in front of our eyes when we teach a room full of people in movement. That's mm-hmm. how it started for me. I was yeah. teaching a Shivananda class and not everyone could do the, whoops, sorry, not everyone could do the postures. Mm-hmm. It's like, hmm, why is this person able to do this and this person unable to do that? You know, what is going on under the surface maybe in their bodies that lets someone easily do one posture and that same person has trouble with another and vice versa. And so I started looking in books and seeing where the hamstrings were attached and where the this or that was attached. And it's like, okay, things started making a little bit more sense, you know? So for me, the, the, the whole reason to, to even approach a topic like anatomy was to understand on a more functional level what was in front of me as as someone that was teaching yoga so it sounds redundant in other words mm-hmm. functional anatomy sound because the whole reason for me to be interested in anatomy is to understand function yes so that's really interesting yeah it's out it, maybe it it is sort of a kind of contemporary term that's rebranded something that's already I think there's there. straw manning Frankly, I think there's straw manning regional anatomy. Right. I think there's straw manning the way Western medical people study anatomy. I that see. Maybe what they're doing. Okay. You know. Yeah. Um, which is easy enough to do. Yeah. Because I've had doctors come in to some of my um, uh, anatomy courses when I was teaching them, you know, in at the Breathing Project in New York. And, and, you know, they studied anatomy. The first year med students study anatomy, regional anatomy, and you go through a year or a semester, whatever it is of dissection, and you're learning it. You're learning what you need to learn to pass the test about anatomy. And then depending on what specialty you go into, if it's surgery, of course, you have to really, really know your stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But that's still a particular lens, a particular way of understanding anatomy. And when, and, and, but they don't get any kinesiology unless they're going into ortho, you know, mm-hmm. and even there, it's it's just with the understanding of what the mechanics are of what you're repairing. You know, a physiatrist would have a little bit more, perhaps, but but still, it's a particular medicalized lens. Mm-hmm. And they come in and they see yoga and what we're doing and how we're talking about anatomy. And it's a whole new world for them. So it's pretty easy to straw man that sort of medicalized anatomy training that that people have in Western medicine and say, oh no, we're studying 
functional anatomy. Yeah. Because this isn't that. Mm. So I'm just talking out of my ass here. I don't really know. I think that, I mean, that's probably a safe hypothesis and I'll have to, maybe I'll bring a functional anatomy person on. Sure. If you're out there, send yeah. me an email. Yeah, tell me uh, I'm wrong. <laughs> tell me I'm full of shit. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask about something that just kind of occurred to me because I, I remember in when I was still in New York, I... Um, uh, or, you know, and obviously prior to COVID, th- what seemed to be happening, at least in the yoga communities mm-hmm. that I was a part of, was an anatomy craze. And this took the form of, you know, New Yorkers want to be the smartest people in the room, let's be honest, right? They're, like, that's their thing. And um, they, uh, the, I think that the the form of intelligence for a yoga teacher took on a lot of... Um, acquiring a vast terminology of anatomy and so what i ended i know and so what i ended up finding in classes it just started to i was it was like you were a wash being washed with all of this terminology and all of this hyper detail specificity about like what's going on in your hip and i was like i can't i mean i'm a yoga teacher and i can't access what you're talking telling me right now and it's completely distracting right. and, and you're supposed to be micromanaging all of it on a moment to moment basis yeah yeah were you taking Iyengar classes no okay. i don't want to say the studio because i still have a great relationship with that studio <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but there were and i and i think that actually it's it's kind of softened now but there was there were and it wasn't all the teachers but were certain teachers where um, you know, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a, it was a studio that's sort of known for its intelligence. I do think that anatomy, there was an anatomy teacher that I know that was kind of very hot to the, to the, uh, I'm sorry, the, and a Yengar teacher was really hip to the anatomy train. Sure. Um, but, um, just generally speaking, it's like, you know, I would, you know, for me personally, like I, I guess I would be more attracted to some, the development of someone's sort of philosophical knowledge, subtle knowledge sure. about yoga. Um, to me, that's more meaningful and also like more of the point. Um, but they, but there really was this kind of like deep, deep, um, development of and escalation of anatomy terminology in the classroom sure. in a regular yoga class. No, I've run into that. So I, what you do know, you think when about I run that? Into that? I run into that when I, I don't take other people's classes anymore because they, right. they see me they recognize me and then that starts spilling out of their mouth <laughs> right you know and so gotta yeah. impress the the anatomy guru oh god yeah <laughs> and it's just it's so un, it's so uncomfortable um sure first of all we have to understand that that kind of anatomy knowledge and language the ability to understand it and express it this is just to go back to the hemispheric model of the brain for a moment. That's very left brain stuff we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's it's very language based, linear kinds of processing. And if you're being asked to experience your body in real time that way, with the words that are coming out of someone's mouth, like you know, I've heard people teach Austin like, "I want you to to flex your your shoulder joint and externally rotate it, and then flex it." It's like these step-by-step instructions, almost like you're assembling an Ikea piece of furniture, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and teaching asana that way to me is just maddening. It just drives me crazy. And then to throw all this anatomical stuff on top of that way of asking your students to process what you're saying into their bodies, you're leaving out a more global, holistic, uh, organic way of experiencing yourself and let's just say for the moment that that's how the right half of your brain processes information you know the the um the parallel processing as opposed to the serial processing if you want to use computer terms you know 
you're 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 just kind of locking people into this very linear reductionistic way of of understanding reality, and and you know as as far as I can tell, people come into a yoga class needing to bust out of some of that, you know, and and I, to whatever extent, our book or anything I've taught or or put out there in the world has made people think that this is a good way to teach yoga. I apologize. <laughs> You heard it here first. Well, no, because seriously, <laughs> when the when the book first came out, we Amy and I were horrified to, um, to 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 hear that some people thought it was a practice manual, mm. meaning they were going through the the analysis we did of each pose, and then trying to you know get each joint in their body to do the thing that we were describing, mm. and they were like they were they were using it as a um, a, a recipe for further micromanaging their 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 neuromuscular musculoskeletal existence and it's like no that's it's not a it's not a practice manual yeah it's a reference book that lets you know what what's happening when you put your body into a shape from a starting position mm. um so so yeah there is that 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 way of of teaching and and like you it just like it's like nails on a chalkboard yeah you know uh, and and I, I I don't I don't really understand the value of it mm. other than showing off. It's showing. I off. think it's showing off. It's showing I, off. I think it's it's an insecurity that many people have because let's face it when you when you approach a field that's as vast as anatomy it's impossible to feel to, to not feel insecure in terms of how much you know yeah. versus how much there is to know mm -hmm. you know and i think a lot of people think the more they can learn and the the more they can memorize and the more they can spit back out their mouth of what they've memorized the less insecure they'll feel mm. uh around their anatomy um so i think there there's some insecurity there yeah uh that's 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 being compensated for um i i avoid anatomical language as much as I possibly can mm -hmm. when I'm teaching. I avoid the words right and left mm. when I'm teaching. I don't use them. You know, I don't care if my class is all doing the same thing in unison or facing the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I promote a certain amount of creative chaos in the classroom intentionally, you know, because I want people to, to understand what informs their choice to step forward with this leg or that leg. You know, that's, that's, that's fuel for an inquiry. Yeah. Right. So I, I don't even direct them as far as right and left is concerned. I'm certainly not going to say, OK, now we're going to do something for your hamstrings. Mm -hmm. you know? If someone asks a question about a problem they're having and it's and it's answerable with some anatomy that's going to help them. Yeah. But I, I don't spew it out there. Yeah. You know, that that to me is just taking things in the classroom in the wrong direction. Well, that, that brings up an interesting question of how then do we as teachers translate the anatomical knowledge to a supportive container for the student or rather how does how do you transmit that in a way that actually is fruitful uh, rather than overwhelming? Sure. I don't think it's a direct transmission. I think you translate it into your own practice. Mm. You translate it into your own understanding of your body, mm. digest it, mm. and then the words that come out Right. Will have some meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I, I think you're skipping a step. Yes. If you think that you, the, the stuff that you learn anatomically is going to directly come out your mouth and help your students uh, without having really ingested, digested, and, you know, um, 
fully uh, embodied yeah. uh, what it is you've learned. Because otherwise, otherwise, it's just some, you know, mental masturbation, yeah. you know, that you're doing publicly. Yeah. You know? And we're not supposed to masturbate publicly. No, we're not supposed to masturbate at all. <laughs> Haven't you heard? <laughs> wow, that, that's, that's really interesting. You didn't and go to Catholic school, did you? I actually went to Lutheran private Lutheran. school okay. uh, until I was in 10th grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fortunately I left and went to public school because I, I joined the choir of the public school. So, so I was able to escape. But yeah. <laughs> But I certainly was indoctrinated with all of that, yeah, and uh, and I still don't masturbate. So, oh, good to hear, good to hear. <laughs> um, so, so the I, I want to. I, I can't wait to see the post production version of this. <laughs> no, this is the kind of stuff I leave in, Leslie. <laughs> there you go. This is what keeps people coming back. Um, so, the the one thing that came up before we started our conversation that I kind of wanted to. Um, um, well, we're, we're about a hundred, an hour and a half in, so maybe we'll start to wrap things up. And I wanted to ask about this beautiful thing that you'd mentioned before we started inter, uh, talking, which was um, the relationship between the... So obviously you do um, anatomy, obviously, mm-hmm. as we're talking about, but actually really one of the ways in which I feel like many people were introduced to your work was through this I, this this project called The Breathing Project, and you're much you're much focused on the breath. And, mm-hmm. and that, to me, is a really important piece of the anatomy work that you do because you can't, you know, if you're looking at anatomy without thinking about the breath, it's just a dead cadaver, right? And the breath brings this sort of prana yeah. <laughs> it brings life to the body well, that's why we feel okay about putting scalpels to the donors because they're not breathing right yeah yeah you probably wouldn't bring, bring scalpels to no life. i'd be a surgeon then and yeah. that's 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 not know, a whole that, other gig that, that, that's not in your wheelhouse yeah. but i loved that you had mentioned that when you were when you're teaching the anatomy of of the mouth mm. you use the sanskrit letters i do um, as a way of, of kind of teaching that. And I've been doing a lot of interviews with, with Sanskrit folks because I, mm. I study Sanskrit myself and I'm very fascinated with, and I'm, and in some ways I feel like a kind of commitment to encourage and inspire other people to study Sanskrit because it is such a beautiful, I think it's a contemplative practice. Um, it is. And, and, it, and, and it's, uh, it's one of the few existing languages that has a, a perfectly consistent and logical structure to it where things are pronounced exact are spelled exactly as they're pronounced right and they're pronounced exactly as they're spelled so how does yeah. that then help with teaching um about the anatomy of the mouth right well this came up because before we started recording i saw on yourself there uh, uh my friend vyas houston's uh, sanskrit by cd mm-hmm. uh, is it sanskrit by mp3 now has it evolved even further i don't actually know i you haven't get vyas on the on the podcast i, I think him. i've reached out to him so maybe i'll use you as a connector to, to get him on here <laughs> yeah, no, i was as i said i was there when he was launching the the whole thing. that's incredible how long has it been going I was I was trying to think of when that must have been. It was probably 1989 in New York at my old old studio, Yoga Tone, that yes. announced that he was launching the, the Sanskrit training. Um, so yeah, I, this is just purely the phonetics. I, the grammar and everything else is is beyond me. I have a good working vocabulary that one acquires by spending time at an ashram yeah. and so on. Right. But um, it was the phonetics that enthralled me because um, as it was explained to me and as I began to recognize. The, the Sanskrit alphabet, the way it's laid out, is literally a map of the mouth. Mm-hmm. So you have the five locations and, you know, the, the way that the vowels and semivowels are constructed. It, it's this, there's this whole understanding that the ancient people had of how sound is produced in, in 
in a human uh, by human anatomy that is beautifully uh, expressed in the alphabet and is easily taught yeah. by going through the alphabet. So, you know, for example, I'll, I'll start with getting people to understand what a root vowel is. You know, you start with ah, you go to e, you go to u, you know, and then, you know, you, you, you get people to feel where that's coming from, Yeah. you know. And, and then you just start working with uh, some of the diphthongs and you get to the... I chant a little differently than Vyas, actually, you know, um, but it's, you know, like... I don't do um, ha, I do ah, hum. Mm-hmm. That turns into a mantra. Yes, of right? course, yeah. So, you know, and so once you get people in, in a rhythm like that, you start injecting some of the consonants. And you can start at the front or the back, whatever you want. But, you know, eventually you're getting to do things like ma, ma, mi, mi, mu, mu, mi, mi, mo, mal, ma, mam, you know, ba, ba, bi, bi, bu, bu, be, bai, bo, bao, ba, bam, pa, pa, pi, pi, bu, bu, be, pai, po, pao, pa, pam. People start laughing when we do that. <laughs> Papa and pee pee and poo poo. <laughs> but but that's, that brings up a whole interesting conversation. Why are those baby sounds? Yeah. Because the first part of their vocal apparatus that babies are articulating with are their lips. Yeah. The m- things that most Im- that are most important to a newborn baby is pop you know, is mama and papa and some pee pee and poo poo. Mm-hmm. And and Baba Baba is like a bottle or a breast or something, right? Mm-hmm. It's like wow. If you go, if you look at all the languages on the planet, at the words for mother, they're going to be in that in that labial range, you know, yeah. Mama, Ima, Ama, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these interesting conversations evolve, but th- th- it's just a, a model that I've used like a scaffold, really, uh, for the teaching of what's going on in the soft palate with the tongue with the lips uh in the throat so the the lessons in my yoga anatomy course which are now online because the breathing project no longer exists as a studio yeah uh when we get to that part we're using the sanskrit alphabet as Mm. a as a way for exploring beautiful systematically i love that yeah that's really great So I wanted to end on this question of uh, recently at Embodied Philosophy, we hosted this one day summit called Future of the Yoga Teacher. And I brought I brought Avon and I brought a few other um, folks on to talk about um, different, essentially, yeah, a different considerations about, you know, post COVID, how the yoga world has changed um, and what we how we how we navigate this world. A part of it is like really pragmatically and from a business perspective, like how do I build a yoga business now? Um, but I'm, I'm glad just, you've got Ava on that because, you know. She's real good. She's well, definitely thought a lot about it. I have to get that book published. That's my publisher, Human Kinetics. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was oh, totally wow. inside job. Oh, my gosh. That was a total Full inside circle. Job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I just signed a contract with Human Kinetics, so now I'm probably. Well, there you go. You're part of the team. They're <laughs> going to gonna ask me to review your book. And oh, I'll probably right. say yes. I've actually said no to a couple. Oh, well, it was si- signed contract was for, um, it's to uh, actually, um, for us to, pu- for us to sell her book. Yeah. Oh, I see. So you haven't published my book yet. Oh. But I'll have to shop around for the right publisher, but right. I'll keep you on the list. <laughs> um, so what is the, um, what do you see as the challenges of yoga teachers now um, in in this kind of post-COVID world? And how do you see, like, what's your sort of optimistic view about the future of yoga? And what's sort of, if my you have one, view. your cynical view? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's the same view. My 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 optimistic view uh, includes 
a certain amount of cynicism mm-hmm. because it has to be. Otherwise, it's it's just pie in the sky, not reality based optimism. Um, okay, so I'm the big tent guy, right? I'm the one who says, yeah, you wanna you wanna teach weed yoga or you know uh, beer yoga or doga or broga or hot naked hot you know whatever yoga, fine, mm-hmm. you know. Does it turn my stomach a little bit when I see one of these weird permutations? Because it's not my personal cup of tea. Sure, you know, but I, I've learned, that's one of the things I've learned to give a little space to and not react to. Right. Right. Because, and and this is, a, 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 you may think it's a cynical point of view, but it's a practical point of view. The, 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 the slice of the overall yoga pie that nourishes me and my family is a very, very thin slice. I would be a fool to argue against the pie itself getting bigger. Yeah. My proportion of it won't get bigger proportional to the whole pie, but if the pie gets bigger, it gets more nourishing. Yeah. And the reason it gets more nourishing is because, you know, maybe one in a hundred people who go to Doga or Broga or whatever will develop as a result of being asked to move and breathe at the same time, some kind of transformational experience that makes them want to go deeper. Mm-hmm. They'll eventually find maybe someone like me. Um, so I think the pie should be as big as possible, include as many people as possible. And no one has the right to say that you are not allowed to teach that yoga because I think it's stupid. Yeah. And you're denigrating the good name of yoga by attaching these other things to it. Right. People who are the self-appointed yoga police. Yeah. um, A lot of that. They are insecure busybodies, Mm. um, (laughs) for the most part. Uh, who who really feel that they have the right to become the yoga police? Yeah, you know, um, and and so I, I I don't agree with that that point of view. Yeah, the more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. Because after all, in the age of the internet, if you have an interest in yoga and you look up the Wikipedia entry for yoga, you're not going to find broga or doga or weed yoga or or hot you know booty you know hot booty yoga. No, what is it? Um, <laughs> Uh, be, uh, yoga, yoga, booty, boot yoga booty ballet. Yes, that's a, that's yoga booty ballet. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you're not going to find you're going to find, you know, the history of yoga, right? You know, uh, in all of its complexity and you know uh, depth and whatever. So anyone that wants to look a little deeper into this thing that has given them some benefit, because look, if that's what it takes to get someone on a mat, is the prospect of bringing your dog with you or whatever, or a goat climbing on you. Fine. As long as once you're on that mat, someone at some point is going to ask you to move and breathe at the same time. That's what opens the door of all these possibilities. Yeah. You know, so that to me is the optimistic view. And if you want to call it the cynical view, it's like people are going to find a way to, you know, brand it for a particular audience that they think they can make money off of. And that's just the free market operating. Yeah. I'm a free market guy. I'm not I'm not the one to say you shouldn't be able to do that, you know? So if I have a, a, a cynical bone in my body <laughs> about all of this, um, it's it's that, you know, people are are going to be exploitive. They're going to try to game the system. They're 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 going to try to use social media algorithms to promote some idea about yoga that has nothing to do with with their 
authentic experience or anything that's authentically transformed them. It's going to be all flash. And let's let's face it, any mid-level gymnast in any high school anywhere in the country can do asanas in front of a camera and look impressive. Yeah. That doesn't mean squat about Doesn't anything. mean squat, no. But if you but were... they're getting a lot of yoga gigs from their if, Instagram if posts. If you were a, cynic, a <laughs> cynical person who saw that this is how you can have a teaching career in the yoga space and you just set up a tripod and did these things and start... See, that... So, you know, but that's just that's just the free market in operation. The, the you know, the, the cream will flow to the top. The shit will sink. I don't know, this... Does healthy shit sink or does healthy shit float? I'm not sure how that I works. I think healthy shit floats. Yeah, whatever. But you see my point. <laughs> the, the truth will come out in the long run. Yeah. You know, and, and so that's my optimistic point of view. Yeah. Uh, that in, in, in the end, the, 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 the small percentage of people that are truly interested in, in, in quality will find their 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 tribe mm-hmm. you know and I, I think of it in terms of music too you know like the conductor of the philharmonic isn't out there trying to trying to put a beating on p diddy because he thinks what he's doing isn't music yeah you know it's like it's, it's you know does he have opinions maybe but why would he want to enforce them on someone else that's enjoying rap yeah you know yeah i know a classical scholar who's one of the top music theorists in the world He's an expert on Renaissance music. He's also an expert on hip hop because it fascinates him from a mm. theory point of view. Yeah, you know. So there's there's tents that are big enough for for everyone. Well, what I hear what what you're saying, and I really appreciate what you're saying, is sort of like a kind of ar- a realist and a pragmatist argument. The realist is more like, you know, these things are going to happen whether or not you want them to or not. Like yeah. people are going to invent new sure. modes. Yeah. It's been happening since the dawn of time. And no matter, and the idea that one could sort of police that is in some sense naive and adolescent. Yeah. And then on the other hand, the pragmatist argument is that, well, you know, even if we might, you know, bristle and roll our eyes at goat yoga, <laughs> like, that 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 may be the gateway exactly. just for them to actually maybe and then 10 years they're going to be a you know a yoga philosopher or something like or you know someone who's deeply into the the subtle aspects of the tradition and you just have no idea what the trajectory of an individual student is going to be so we want the more gateways right. into that and i guess that f- the fear you know for someone who's striking a critical position would be that well, if we confuse this space more and more with all these alternatives, then the option to find that, you know, true yoga, I'm using that in air quotes, um, becomes less and less. So do you just like think that that's, like you're saying, that cream ultimately rises to the top and that eventually those things naturally unfold in a positive direction? If you have have issues with stuff other people are doing, I would say take whatever energy you have around that and redirect it into creating a superior product. Right, yeah. That's true to you and true to your aspirations and trust that there are people in the universe who will resonate with that. Mm-hmm. And, and and maybe talk to someone like Ava about the efficient ways to get it out there in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. She's going to you know? love that you said that on this. Yeah, well, yeah. there you go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've had people show up in workshops who are very deeply committed to this path who started in a gym. They, 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 they were fitness instructors. They were trained by Yoga Fit, mm-hmm. you know, as one of these instructors back then. And they just found a path and they followed it and they followed it and they followed it. 
you know? And what would that have been like for them if someone had shut that down and said, no, this isn't yoga, you shouldn't do it, we're coming in and we're shutting your doors? Yeah. Not that anyone would ever have the power to do that, but some people would maybe yeah. like it if they did. Yeah. yeah. What if someone, what if redirecting someone's attention onto their own product is a product that's about criticizing and tearing down all of these other lesser than products? Oh, they'll find their tribe too. Yeah. I mean, they already have, you know? <laughs> yeah. So they haven't stopped, they haven't stopped me yet. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> You're still getting invited to give podcast interviews. <laughs> yeah. Well, this may be the last one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Will it be the poop that gets them, or um, you know, will it be the will it be the cultural commentary? We'll have to see. <laughs> oh, you know the parts that it would be. <laughs> well, uh, Leslie, it's been really fun. I'm so glad I was able to have you in my studio slash home and to talk um, with some new fancy equipment around us, and for people to be able to see uh, this on video if they if they want to. Um, and actually, I, maybe I should mention that for those that are j still just listening to this podcast. Um, uh, Leslie and I are in my home in London with video cameras and this will soon be a um, or you'll be able to watch the video version of these episodes on our Chitheads YouTube channel so if you'd like to check that out go ahead and um, look it up <laughs> awesome. and you'll post all the contact stuff for me along with the episode obviously. oh absolutely <laughs> yep we'll link to all that those wasn't a question that was a <laughs> that was a demand so Leslie Leslie, what are you up to in the future? I want to end with that, actually. Sure. what? Uh, how can people get in touch with you? How sure, can people sure. um, see what you're doing? When, when are you doing more workshops? Sure. What's the online presence and all of that? Well, everything's collected on my personal website, which is uh, yogaanatomy.org. Uh -huh. And that's two A's, yogaanatomy.org. Mm -hmm. No dash. There's another one with one A, and it's not me. There's no dash, just one okay. word, yogaanatomy.org. And there's links to all the stuff I'm doing there, including my teaching calendar and some online content I've put together, like a subscription service, and also um, the online courses that we've put up, which were the ones we were teaching at The Breathing Project, which are now online. And and sort of the most successful one is the fundamentals, where um, it's an online way of providing the, the 20 or 30 or whatever hours that are required for a teacher training program. Right. That's both me and Amy uh, with much more than 20 or 30 hours of resources behind it. And, yeah. Uh, so that's proved to be a very useful thing for all these sort of online trainings now. Absolutely. Cool. Incredible. Yeah. All right. So you heard it. Ana Yogaanatomy.net. I've been speaking with Leslie Kamenoff. Yogaanatomy.net are the online courses. Yogaanatomy.org is your personal website. We, we do have yoga. Those are the online courses. .net and then .org is my personal website. All right. Thank you yeah. for that. Thank you. I almost, thank you. I almost sent people in the wrong direction. No, no. That was a good website. Okay, good. All right. Um, I've been speaking with Leslie Kamenoff, author, uh, along with Amy Matthews of Yoga Anatomy. Leslie, thank you so much. Been a pleasure. Been fun.